If you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45 is where we're going to be reading and unpacking this morning. We opened a new series last week entitled Fan or Follower, in which we're taking a look at, over the course of the next several weeks together, some of the real hard teachings of Jesus in the Gospels that really draw a line in the sand between those who are just clamoring around Jesus as fans, moving from town to town with him to see what he's about to do next. Right, to be close to him, to see what's about to unfold versus those who are following him and they've begun to reorient their lives around who he is, what he's doing, where he's going, and what he's teaching. And so we're looking at this series over the course of these next several weeks, wanting to draw a line for ourselves between those of us who may be fans of Jesus, who like a lot of things that he has to say about what our agenda is, but we're not necessarily followers of Jesus who are yielding our, the entirety of our lives over to him. So in Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, beginning in verse 35 down through verse 45 is what we're going to read together. Back up a little bit further in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has just issued the third of three predictions of his passion. In other words, Jesus says, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, they're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. But I'll rise again on the third day. And just off the heels of Jesus' prediction of his passion, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, you got two guys who come up to Jesus with the best prayer ever, right? In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, the text reads, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds familiar as a dad, right? <laughs> Your kids come. Now, we're going to ask you a question. But before we ask you a question, I want to make sure you're not going to say no, <laughs> Right? That's exactly what James and John do to Jesus here. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said, you will be baptized but to, or I'm sorry, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10, the rest of the disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them, all of them, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Mike Horton, who's the host of the White, Inn, uh, White Horse Inn podcast, um, recently in a recent episode, cited an interview with C.S. Lewis back in the 1950s in which C.S. Lewis was asked in his native home country of Britain if he was concerned about the de-Christianizing of the West. Now, what happened in Britain 60 years ago is now beginning to, the, the wave is beginning to crest and crash here in America. But Lewis was experiencing much of what we're experiencing now 50 to 60 years ago on the other side of the sea. And so he's asked if he was concerned about the de-Christianizing of the West. And whenever he responds, Lewis says, I cannot speak to the political aspects of the question, but I have some definite views about the de-Christianizing of the church. 
I believe that there are many accommodating preachers and too many practitioners in the church who are not believers. Jesus Christ did not say, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite right. The gospel is something completely different. In fact, it is directly opposed to the world because the gospel calls all of us to die. We saw that last week, to die. The beginning of the Christian life is death. The beginning of the Christian life is dying to all of the earthly attachments, all of our agendas, all of our aspirations and dreams and desires, yielding those over to God, dying to all the ways that we choose to identify ourselves and build our identities. Now, Mike Horton goes on to say, it is one thing for the Christian church to lose its cultural influence. He says, fusing Christ with a particular civilization is already a gross distortion of the faith. Nevertheless, Christendom is over. It's dead, regardless of whether you think it was a good or bad idea in the first place. Benign prayers to an unknown God in public schools, apart from the mediator, Jesus Christ, is already a capitulation to secularism. He says, the question is not whether crosses dominate national memorials where Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists are buried. He says, the question is whether the cross is proclaimed in your church this Sunday. He says, that's the heart of the question because at the heart of the Christian faith is the cross. At the heart of the Christian faith, that's why the beginning of the Christian life is death. The beginning of the Christian life is self-denial. It's bearing our cross. It's coming after Jesus and putting to death all of our attachments, all of our agendas, and ascribing to him all of our allegiance and dedication. At the center of the Christian faith is the cross. It is the cross. And it's vitally important that in our churches that the cross be at the center of what we're proclaiming and what we're preaching, what we're discussing, what we're declaring, what we're talking about, and what we're applying in people's lives. And here's why. It's vitally important the cross be at the center because because sin has so distorted humanity's vertical identity. In other words, how we see ourselves. We don't see ourselves as children of God, as image bearers of God, that God has created for the purpose of bringing himself great glory. We see ourselves as autonomous, independent individuals who can decide for ourselves our own destinies. See, our vertical identity has gotten all messed up because of sin. It's been distorted, but so also has our horizontal activity in the way that we engage with and treat others. So our vertical identity, how we see ourselves before God, we're pretty, base, pretty much basically see ourselves as good people who just need a little boost every once in a while to get ourselves over the hump. And horizontally, we create all kinds of havoc and wreak all kinds of destruction in the relationships that we're engaged in because sin is so distorted how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And if, as Lewis says, if we go into the world and we say, you guys are, I love the way he says it, right? Very British. You guys are quite Right? Right? You're quite right. Everything's quite right. right. Everything's really good. Everything's great. All you got to do is kind of a little tweak here, a little bit of tweak there in your life, and everything will be on the smooth path. And if that's what the church is going to proclaim and preach, if that's what the church is going to declare and discuss, then what happens is, and what happens is that we're going to go into all the world and tell them that they are okay And our words basically will be kindling for the fires of hell. Because we're not talking about the cross. We're not talking about dying to self and rising to live this kind of life that Jesus calls and commands us to live. 
See, unless we're regularly telling the world and ourselves, we've got to look in this book and look in the mirror, look at the cross ourselves. Unless we're regularly saying to the world and to ourselves in the church, regularly saying that we've got to die to ourselves. Unless we're regularly saying that we must die to our attachments, allegiances, agendas, and identities, then we're going to do nothing but pour concrete in order to smooth, make the broad road really smooth. Okay, the broad road will be really smooth and really easy. We're just kind of cruise on down that thing at cruise control at 70 miles an hour, heading straight for a cliff. Unless we're saying to the world and to ourselves, the cross is at the center. The cross is at the center. The cross is at the center. And one area of human life that sin has so wholly distorted that the cross speaks to for us is that how our understanding of greatness and glory our understanding of greatness and our understanding of glory in this life. You see, one of the distinctions between fans and followers of Jesus is that fans of Jesus, they love to talk about glory and greatness. They love to wave the flag and have the pom-poms and and cheer on the sidelines and talk about the glory and the greatness, but only followers of Jesus know something of what Paul speaks of in Philippians when he talks about sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings and becoming like Jesus in his death. See, fans of Jesus, they love to talk about abounding in blessings and abounding in provisions and all the things that God gives and all the things that God provides and doing all things through Christ who strengthens them. But only followers of Jesus know what it is to be content in all circumstances, whether they're abounding or whether they're in abundance or in abasement. Either one. They know what it is to be content. In fact, that's what Paul says when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether I have a lot or I have a little. Only followers understand that. Fans want to talk about all this great stuff that God's going to shower on you. But followers of Jesus understand that sometimes things are very lean. But God's given me the grace even to live in those moments. Fans of Jesus, they love to talk about sitting at the right and left of the king in the kingdom. But only followers of Jesus know something of the cup and the baptism of what Jesus speaks here. There's a big difference between fans and followers. And one of the lines of demarcation is how they understand greatness and glory in this life. That's what we want to take a look at this morning from this text in Mark. And the first thing that I think that we see in this text is that our natural fallen bent, the way that you and I function most commonly in our lives, is that in a prideful pursuit of human glory and greatness through power and privilege. See, our fall and bent is to pursue glory and greatness very pridefully through having lots of power and positions of great privilege. Right? One of the clearest examples that you can see this, uh, of this is in the most intimate of all human relationships between a husband and a wife. Right? Our fall and bent is to pursue Glory and greatness through power and privilege. And you see this play itself out between husbands and wives in homes in the context of marriages all across the map. You see, because subsequent to the fall, the hearts of men, you find this in Genesis chapter 3, subsequent to the fall, the hearts of men are bent toward domineering and domination and exercising dominion over their spheres of influence, including in their homes and sometimes including their wives. Their hearts are bent toward domination while the hearts of women are bent toward manipulation. 
right? Not necessarily power and force and strength, but using their feminine ways in order to exercise control and gain the upper hand and leverage power over their husbands. You see it immediately on the heels of our first parents fall in the sin when God pronounces judgment upon them. He says to the, in, his, in, his, in his, his speech to the woman, he says this in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You see, what happened subsequent to the fall is that this relationship that God had established in, in, in creation between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, it would get distorted and warped and bent in such a way that the woman then would begin to desire to exercise authority, control, and dominion over her husband. That's what that word desire means. She not just want, generally just hang out with him on the beach, right? And go on vacations together. That's not what the word desire here means. In fact, you go to Genesis chapter 4, and when God speaks to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he says, you've got to be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door, and it's the same word. Your, its desire is to have you. Its desire is to overtake you. Its desire is to control you. Its desire is to oppress you. And that's the exact word that God uses in his speech to the woman in Genesis 3.16 when he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, the fallen bent of a feminine heart, unredeemed, unregenerate, outside of Christ, is to exercise whatever femininity that she has in order to manipulate and gain the upper hand and leverage power and control in the context of that relationship. It's a pursuit of power and a position of privilege. But notice what she says about the man subsequent to the fall. But he shall rule over you. It's the word that they uses there to exercise dominion. So, in other words, because of sin in our lives, the fallen bent of the male heart is to exercise dominion in the same way that he did over the giraffes and the bears and the tigers and the lions. To exercise dominion over this other portion of God's creation, over this woman that stands next to him now. And I think you see a portion of that whenever he names her. He names all the other animals, right? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, all these animals paraded right there before him. And he names all of them. He says, I'm going to exercise dominion over you too. Let me give you a name. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Both domination and manipulation are power plays for control, positions of privilege in the context of the most intimate of human relationships. And as a result of sin and the fall, Our hearts get bent and wrapped around that endless quest of prideful pursuit of glory and greatness through power and privilege, even in the most intimate of relationships. And you see this creates all kinds of havoc and destruction in marriages. You see, because men are bent toward domination, many women live in a very mousy kind of existence where they don't really have a voice in the relationship. They really can't speak to the issues that that exist between them. Because every time they do, it's met with thundering force of domination. And they live in an abusive environment. And on the flip side, many because women are bent toward manipulation, many men have become very passive in their marriages. Because every time they try and exercise any kind of of leadership, even if it's loving and serving and sacrificing, when they try and exercise that, the women respond with guilt trips and emotional storms in order to try and control That's the natural, sinful bent of the human heart. 
And all of that is a, is, a, is a scratching and clawing for power and privilege in the context of relationships. It's a pursuit of glory and greatness. And it becomes quite clear from reading this text in Mark chapter 10 that even though the disciples had heard Jesus speak of his passion now three times, of how he's heading to the cross to die, they still don't get it. And I don't either. Oftentimes. And you probably don't as well. Because look at how they respond in the text. In verse 35, James and John basically come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to be our vendor and supply whatever it is that we need. Whatever it is we ask you for, Jesus, we want a written, signed contract that before we ask, you're going dis- to be ready to dispense. Right? So they come asking for that. In verse 37, it becomes clear that James and John want positions of privilege and power in Jesus' coming kingdom. The positions of the left and the right were positions of influence, were positions of power, were positions of prestige, of privilege. And they say, Jesus, that's where we want to be whenever you come to exercise your rule and reign. That's the position that we want. Then in verse 31, when the other 10 hear about the request of, Jesus, of, of James and John, they become moved with indignation. They're filled with resentment, outrage, fury, and anger. Why? Because James and John don't get it? No, because they beat them to the punch in asking for it. Right? That's why the other 10 are so angry. That's why Jesus summons all of them to himself, and he begins to teach them about what true greatness looks like. See, they don't get it, and neither do we oftentimes. We equate, we equate greatness and glory with power and privilege. In other words, do we have servants underneath us who can serve us? That's what we equate greatness and glory with. And you see it in the culture, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid as well. When I look in the mirror at times, I see it in my life, and I see it in the church. Several ways that you see it around you. You see it politically. Oftentimes, listen, we're coming into a campaign season where there are all these people clamoring for nominations to be elected into the highest office of our country. And there are particular constituencies who want to try and leverage control over people by exercising power and privilege, by moving into positions of power and privilege. They want to dominate. They want to exercise that authority. They want to be in those positions to leverage control from the top down because we think that's how it works, right? Not from the bottom up. We got to change everything from the top down, not from the bottom up. Do you think that the way that the early church changed and radically revolutionized the culture that was hostile toward the gospel was by being elected into offices? No, it wasn't from the top down. It was from the bottom up as it was a surge of love and service that went out to the people around them, even people who were their enemies and were persecuting them. You see it politically. You see it communally in the church. You see it politically in our culture and communally in the church. Listen, listen. When, when, you see it communally when we only surround ourselves with people who aren't needy. And we isolate ourselves from people who have deep hurts and hang-ups. I don't want to surround myself with people who need something from me, right? Because I want to stay in that position of privilege and power. I don't want to have to stoop beneath that and to actually engage in these long conversations with people who have deep hurts and incredible hang-ups. And here's why. Because it's incredibly inglorious and very unglamorous and inconvenient to meet with someone at 11 p.m. whenever they call you on the phone and they say that they just got back from the hospital because their ex-girlfriend 
is claiming that your brother has drugged and raped her. And you got to go meet that guy at Whataburger at 11 p.m. And sit and listen for two hours across the table while he weeps and cries. There's no spotlight there. That's not a very glorious position, but it's someone with deep hurt. It's not a very privileged in the eyes of the world. Very powerful place in the eyes of the world. Or whenever you get the phone call from a man who said his wife, who they were having relational and marital problems, his wife went home to visit family. And while she was there, she hooked up with her ex-boyfriend from high school, got pregnant, had a miscarriage, and now wants to move back home and marry, this, get a divorce and move back home and marry her boyfriend from high school. And to go sit down with him and listen to him pour his heart out. That's not a very glamorous place to be. And you see, we clamor for positions of power and privilege, greatness and glory. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the things that, that, that causes communally is we tend to withdraw from people who have needs, deep hurts and hang-ups. And we isolate ourselves from people who would need anything from us because we want to stay in that position of power and privilege. We don't want to be inconvenienced by those phone calls, by those needs. It happens as well, not only politically and communally, but it happens, it happens as well vocationally when people scratch and claw to climb their way to the top because in the eyes of the world, positions of power and privilege are where it's at. That's where you've got to get. It's a very prideful pursuit. That's where your greatness and glory is going to come from. And it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you arrive. And so you can stab people in the back, take credit for their work in order to ascend that ladder and move up into that position of power and privilege. It's the way the culture around us, around us works and it's the way many times in the church things work as well because just as the disciples didn't get it, oftentimes neither do we. Neither do we. The natural bent of the human heart is to pursue greatness and glory through power and privilege. But Jesus says for those who would follow him, not just be fans of his, who want to kind of remain on the outskirts and cheer him on, but those who would actually follow him, Jesus says following him means, move from, means moving from having servants to being servants. It means moving from having servants to being servants. I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys have ever had a chance to kind of enjoy yourself on a lazy river, okay? You know, the lazy river has got the little jets that kind of push you around as you kind of sit there in a little tube, and you kind of lather up in sunscreen, and you lay out on the tube, and it just kind of keeps pushing you around in circles, right? You don't even have to paddle, okay? You can just lay there and do nothing, and it will just keep taking you in circles. Or if you get into a river that you're going to tube, and you get up at the headwaters, and the, the current is strong, and it's pushing you down, all you got to do is sit there and float. You don't have to do anything, and it's going to take you right with it. You see, the, the, the current of our culture is moving toward the pursuit of greatness and glory and power and privilege. And Jesus says in his kingdom, those who would follow him, those who would walk in his footsteps, that you are essentially swimming upstream in a culture that is all about self-exaltation, self-love, self-aggrandizement. And fans of Jesus in that kind of culture are like a piece of styrofoam in the river. Right? It's very light and buoyant, and it just kind of goes wherever the current would take it. Fans of Jesus just kind of follow after that current. 
and they're swept downstream. But followers of Jesus have a mass, a density, and a weight about them. William Gurnall, a Puritan pastor, said it this way. He said, light things are carried by the stream and light spirits by the multitudes. But the sincere Christian is massy and weighty. He will sooner sink to the bottom and yield to the fury of a multitude by suffering from them than float after their example in sinning with them. He says, followers of Jesus have a mass and a density and a weight about them that anchors them so that they don't get swept downstream of pursuing greatness and glory through power and privilege. Because Jesus says to be his follower is to move from having servants to being servants. In verse 43, he draws a very stark contrast. Notice what he says. He draws a stark contrast between our natural fallen bent and those who would set out to follow Jesus. He says, but it must not be so, shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus says the path to greatness and the path to glory in the kingdom is not positions of power and privilege, but the path to greatness and glory in following after Jesus is not power and privilege, but service and suffering. That's what Jesus says. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. He says that for those who are bearing the cross and coming after him, like we looked at last week, for his followers, there's a new marker. There's new identity markers for glory and greatness in life. And it's not positions of power where you can order everyone else with what to do or positions of privilege where you don't get your hands dirty, but it's positions of service where you come underneath people as opposed to staying above them. And it's positions of suffering where you actually mourn and grieve and it causes pain at times. Look at what he says in verse 44. He says, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Now, the word slave that Jesus uses here in the Greek text, it shouldn't be thought of as the same as slaves in our nation in the early days of our history, that were either that were sold and bought into slavery by someone else. But the word that Jesus uses here, rather, is best understood as a bondservant in his culture that was someone who said, sign me up to serve you. In other words, it was not by force, but voluntarily they said, sign me up. It was not by, it was willful and freely not being forced into it. And Jesus says, whoever would be great among you, whoever have glory among you in the kingdom as a follower of Jesus, he says, it doesn't come through power and privilege, but it comes through service and suffering. It comes when you say voluntarily, willfully, and freely, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. I want to address your needs, not use you to address mine. I want to come down beneath you, not use you to platform myself above you. That's what Jesus says greatness and glory looks like as his followers. Now, here's where this gets interesting. All right. And here's where it really begins to connect with the rubber on the road of our lives. Because consider what Jesus says. He says, do you want a title? Do you want a platform? Do you want a position? Do you want people to call you and recognize you as a leader? Whether it be in your home, do you want people to recognize you as a leader in the church? Do you want people to recognize you as a leader in your office? Do you want people to recognize you as a leader in the community? 
He says, do you want the title or the position of pastor or director or administrator or facilitator or elder or deacon? Do you want any of those titles and people to look at you through those lenses? He says, if you do, then it means that you are raising your hand voluntarily, willfully, and freely saying, sign me up to serve. Sign me up to serve. Whatever the needs are, they may be deep hurts in your life. I want to help you. I'm not going to isolate myself from you because you're struggling. There may be incredible hangups you have, but I want to press into those as opposed to pull away from them. I want to be available and accessible. And Jesus says, if you want a title or a position, you want a platform, you want to be recognized. And we all have that longing. But he says if in the kingdom, the way that comes is not through you climbing on top of other people's backs to get to these positions of power and privilege to everybody walks by and shakes your hand and says, hey, pastor, how's it going? But he says it comes whenever you, whenever you work your fingers to the bone and you break your back and caring for the needs of those who are around you. Jesus says that is where greatness and glory come from for his followers. Not putting yourselves above others, but beneath them to serve them. And the only people who will do so are the people who have that mass or that weightiness or that density about them. And so here's our final question. How do you get that mass? How do you get that weightiness? How do you get that density that's going to keep you from floating downstream and pridefully pursuing greatness and glory through power and privilege? Where's that going to come from? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 45. Look at what he says. He says, For this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to look I want you to look at how Jesus uses his power. Jesus does not come so that we would serve him, but so that he could serve us. This is, this is incredibly counterintuitive to what most religious people think about Jesus, that Jesus has come so that we could serve him. But Jesus says, I didn't come so that you could serve me. I didn't come so that you could, you, could, you could build your identity around all the things that you're doing for me. Jesus says, I came to serve you. I came to serve you. He says in verse 45, with all the power and all the dominion and all the authority that I possess, I came to exercise it for you. And you might look at Jesus and you go, here's a poor, itinerant, traveling rabbi who says he has no place to lay his head. The dude is homeless. What kind of power does he have? All the power in the world. All the power in the world. That's exactly what he says when he says, for even who? Who does he say came? The son of man. For even the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man figure? If you go back into Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this incredible vision and he sees one who is like the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And he sees coming up to the Ancient of Days, one who is like a son of man. And the text tells us in Daniel chapter 7 that this vision that Daniel sees, that the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is presented before to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." 
And Jesus says, for even who? The one who possesses all authority and dominion, the one who has a kingdom that shall never pass away, no one will ever overthrow, it shall never be destroyed, the one who has all power and authority in human history has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, when you look at the one who's got all dominion and all power and all authority and all rule and all reign, and you look at him laying his life down, coming not to be served but to serve, so that he might procure for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that would worship him for all of eternity as he gives himself for them. When you look at that and you see the price that he paid and you build your life around that, and that's my identity, then it creates this mass and this weightiness and this density that keeps you from being swept downstream and pursuing greatness and glory through power and privilege. Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom, as the price to be paid to set you free. Now, what was that price that Jesus paid? Look at what he says in the text in verse 38. He says, the price is a cup and a baptism. It's a cup and a baptism. Now, Jesus is drawing off an Old Testament imagery here when he talks about the cup. The cup in the Old Testament was most often referred to as the cup of God's wrath against sin and anger. It's the cup of God's judgment that would be poured out on his people or upon the nations. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, he speaks to Jerusalem. He says, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering, so you, you, you drunk it clean all the way down to the bottom. Then in Ezekiel 23, 20, 32 to 34, he says, the Lord, thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup, speaking to one of the kingdoms about their, the, other, the other kingdom, Israel and Judah. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. The cup in the Old Testament, the cup in the Old Testament, most frequently referred to the cup of God's judgment against sin. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You want to sit on my right and my left? You don't know what you're asking. You want positions of power and privilege? You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, when I come into my kingdom, whenever I am most glorified during my incarnation, the point of Jesus, the pinnacle of Jesus' glory during his incarnation is when he's raised up on a cross with his arms outstretched to give his life as a ransom for many. And who is on his right and left? Other men being crucified. Jesus says, I have a cup to drink. The cup of God's wrath against sin. How intense was that cup? Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, Father, all things are possible for you. If there's any other way that we can accomplish the redemption of mankind, let this, what? Cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus, as he prays, is sweating drops of blood. And the medical professionals tell us that it has to be the most intense angst and anxiety and, and uh, in those kinds of moments in order for the capillaries to burst and this blood to begin to pour out of your pores. 
Jesus was in agony over what he was facing on the cross. Not just because he was going to die, but because he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sin of the world. Jesus drank a cup that made him stagger. It was a cup of staggering. And you know what? He drank it to the dregs all the way down and took upon himself all of God's just anger against sin. And it tore his, he tore his breast, as Ezekiel says. He's pierced in the side. He drank the cup to pay the ransom. Other translations might say to redeem. To redeem, to set free, to release you from that styrofoam-like kind of life where you float down the river pursuing greatness and glory through power and privilege. Jesus says, I've got a cup to drink and I've got a baptism to be baptized with. The baptism that Jesus is referring to is not the one by John in the river but it's one that has yet to happen whenever he speaks these words. And the baptism in the Old Testament was an ordeal that someone was about to endure. It was a very intense ordeal. Jesus says, I've got something, an ordeal to endure as I drink the wrath of God against the sin of the world. He says, are you able to drink that? Are you able? Are you able to bear and be overwhelmed by that kind of ordeal? And they say, what? Well, sure, Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. Sign us up. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup and you will be baptized. But it's not going to look like what you think. See, if you will look into the ransom that was paid for your release to be redeemed, and you will see the cup that Jesus drank, on account of my sin, on account of your sin, it begins to create this mass and density and weightiness that keeps us from being swept downstream. And you begin to see what Jesus says in verse 39 when he says, you've got a cup to drink. You can't drink the cup that I'm going to drink. I've got a cup to drink from the Father. It's the cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world, and it's going to overwhelm me. It's going to crash over me like water in a baptism, and it's going to drown me. And Jesus says, you've got a cup to drink as well. I have a cup to drink as well. And Jesus takes this big cup of God's wrath, but there are smaller cups of suffering that are associated with service, isn't there? Anytime you say, I'm not going to leverage myself above people, and I'm not going to try and climb up on top of others in order to platform myself into these positions of power and privilege, anytime you say, I'm going to come up underneath people to serve their needs, there is suffering that is always associated with service. Always. But the good news is, is that as you look into the ransom that was paid for you, that no longer do you have to try and leverage for positions of power and privilege because your heart gets set free the more you see what was paid for you. Your heart gets set free from longing and clamoring after those positions of power and privilege and you can come underneath others with this freedom that you never knew before to serve and give your life away to other people who have deep hurts and hang-ups. 
whether they ever say thank you or not, whether they ever express gratitude or not, whether they abandon you in your deepest hour of need or not. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? He goes in the garden to pray, and he says, hey, guys, all I'm asking you to do is stay awake and pray with me. That's all you got to do. So he goes on a little further. He gets down, and he's sweating drops of blood in agony and angst, and he comes back, and what are they doing? And they are snoring, cutting logs. You ever been abandoned in your hour of greatest need? Jesus says when you come up underneath people to serve them, they're going to let you down. They're going to fail you. But you're not doing it. You're not doing it for applause or accolades or awards or for someone to pin a little sticker on your shirt to say thank you or someone to express gratitude, but you're doing it. You're not giving up on people, but you're doing it. Why? Because you're looking at what he's done for you. And he's not just your example, he's your substitute who pays the price in your place to set you free from doing it for the recognition, for the applause, for the accolades, for the awards. But you come up underneath your spouse to serve them. You come up underneath your kids to serve them. You come up underneath your coworkers to serve them, not use them to platform yourself above them, but to serve them. You come up underneath men and women in the church, you come up underneath your neighbors to serve them. Say, sign me up to serve everyone who's around me. Jesus doesn't put a marker or designation on who you limit your service to. He says, the greatest among you, the one with the greatest glory is the one who is the slave, the willing servant of who? All. In a church filled with followers of Jesus, It wouldn't be people who avoid others with deep hurts and hang-ups. In a church filled with followers of Jesus, there shouldn't be people who are avoiding service offstage. This is a great concern that I have about some who would aspire toward ministries. They see the lights and they see people looking at them and applauding for them and at, with the attaboys and the pats on the back because of how they can perform on a stage. But those who come up underneath this ransom that's been paid in a church filled with followers maybe looking for opportunities off stage to come underneath the needs of people and serve them in a church filled with followers of Jesus who've been set free from having their identity so bound up in their performance and how everything reflects on them they'd be willing to give their life away to others regardless of whether or not they ever express gratitude regardless of whether or not they ever say thank you regardless of whether or not they ever lift a finger to help some of you will work your fingers to the bone in your homes you will work your fingers to the bone in your office you will work your fingers to the bone in your church and if you're doing it to try and rise to the position of power and privilege so that you don't have to work your fingers to the bone anymore, then something's wrong in the heart. In a church filled with followers of Jesus, you're not serving for affirmation from others because you've got all the affirmation you need from God. See, servants understand that Jesus took the big cup there are lots of little cups for those who follow him. So are you moving toward those people 
who have deep needs and hang-ups? Are you moving toward those people who have abandoned you in your hour of need? Are you moving toward those people or are you writing them off? I'm done with them. And if I may be so bold to say, how dare you when you look at what he's done? He drank the cup for you. And there will be cups that you need to drink for others. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thanking you for your grace. God, apart from it, we could not stand in your presence, but we would be struck down by your holiness and majesty. Father, apart from your grace, we would be swept away down the river down the stream with the current that's moving us toward a prideful pursuit of greatness and glory through power and privilege. We will be trying to leverage control and climb on top of people to platform ourselves rather than coming under them to serve. God, apart from your grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ who drank the cup for us, the cup that caused him to stagger and he drank it all the way down so that his body was broken and his blood was shed in our place as our ransom to redeem us and set us free. God, may we move out into the world to come underneath those who are in need and serve them. Knowing that our service to the world can never match yours, but it must be a reflection of it that we cannot serve with the same end that the sins of mankind would be paid for in the way that Jesus does. But we serve with the same purpose, to see people set free as we point them to the one who has served us. God, would you raise up a people here who have a density and a mass and a weightiness about them that they would voluntarily, willingly, and freely say, sign me up to serve everyone that I can. We pray it in Jesus' name.